0: From the campus of Stanford Stanford University, University. this is Schools In.
1: They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know and they just pay attention to that.
0: You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford. And I am with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who's the Dean of the Graduate School of Education.
1: Dr. Denise Inclusive Pope.
0: Oh, I like that. I like being inclusive.
1: Uh, I'm glad. <laughs> so, inclusive is a term that's often used in learning differences in special education. How do you make an environment in which the children can participate and thrive? Right. And and so, this is going to be our topic today. Uh, and part of the reason is that uh, Stanford's starting an initiative in this area. This is uh, learning disabilities, special education, teacher preparation, technology, neuroscience. It's a big deal. And and so as part of the preparation to launch this initiative, we went and visited lots of other institutions that are have programs in this area. And a lot of these institutions have um, preschools for young children.
0: On campus. Yeah,
1: on campus. Preschool up to, you know, five or six. And, you know, they serve two purposes. One is to provide services to the families and the children. The other is there are places to do research and experimentation. So in these preschools, about 65%, maybe 50% of the kids are have some form of learning disability. The other 50% do not. And so I asked some parents, why do you, who have a typical, neurotypical child, put them in this preschool. So what do you think the answer is?
0: Well, I would like to think that they want their kids to be around a whole range of kids and learn inclusivity. But the way you asked it made me think that Maybe it's just a really good preschool, and they would they would go they're going regardless because it has like
1: the best reputation. So don't try and guess the answer (laughs) by the way I ask the question. I felt
0: like you were leading me in a certain direction. Like it's not what you think.
1: Well, it's not what I think. You were right. I was right. You were right. The the parents want their children to. Uh, respect and engage with differences, and understand that this is this is uh, a good thing, a normal thing.
0: I mean, so, I, that's what I would want, to be honest. And um, and I think that that's a beautiful thing. And 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 if it if there's this many that have preschools out there that are that inclusive, it it kind of gives me hope for the future.
1: No, it's a it's. I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, this is why we're starting a program in it. So I, before we get going, I just want to set the. Scale. Okay. So in 2014, what is the number of people ages 3 to 21 years old receiving special education services?
0: 3 to 21?
1: Yeah. What? 2014, how many people?
0: Oh, man, a lot. I would say (laughs) a lot. Um, I don't even know how to think about that. Um, uh, I mean, I would say it's probably – 30% Thirty percent of the population being educated in that age group. So
1: no, you know, too high. Too high.
0: Too high. Too high. So, I was going for the whole like um, uh, oh because they're not necessarily diagnosed. That's mm-hmm, why. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want yeah. Oh, I'm excited to get the guests to find out really the answer. Yes. All right, lower ten percent. Too pretty low.
1: Close. Is that close? So it, it's uh, six and a half million.
0: Six and a half million yeah,
1: are getting special education services. So it's it's a uh, it's a. Uh, it's about 11 12%. I got
0: to I got to believe there's a huge percent that haven't been diagnosed and are are not getting those services. But we can ask our guests And, and
1: there, may, there may be parents who are having their children being falsely diagnosed. So they don't have to – so they get special accommodations to take tests and things like
0: well, that. Well, that's what I see. I, yeah. my, the population that I study, the parents are going and saying, oh, they have ADHD or they have ADD. Tell the doctor that it's so hard for you to concentrate. And that way they get, yeah. you know, extra time. And that's not to dismiss kids who really do need extra time. But it's, it's kind of known in some of the schools that we're working at that that's what's going on.
1: Okay. So uh, the percent of public students uh, who are getting special services is one out of every seven and a half. So we established that before. Uh, How many states have a shortage of credentialed teachers to work with these kids?
0: Oh, my gosh. Like all of them?
1: (laughs) <laughs> almost 48
0: 48 yeah, yeah. yeah i would that's i totally believe that
1: yeah so th- this is an area where there's a lot of promise but there's a lot of need as well it's yeah. uh, being underserved um, so, can I? I know you have a story in this area. Are I, you willing?
0: I have a story. I'm willing. I haven't asked my kid about this, but that's okay. I just won't say which kid. I will speak in gender neutral terms. Um, but one of my kids um, was diagnosed actually, um, it needed uh, occupational therapy, a little bit different, mm-hmm. needed um, to have a special pencil grip um, to use for writing and a slant board to help with the writing. And um, had a wonderful kindergarten teacher because we were a little bit worried about stigma. And, you know, this would make this child feel different. And the kindergarten teacher said, you know what, I'm going to get like five or six of these for the classroom and I'll just pass them around. And so your child isn't going to feel different your child's going to feel special and, and included. And um, and you know what? There's some other kids in this classroom who that would be really good for, too. That's why I said there's probably so many who are undiagnosed because she was like, hey, I got a bunch of kids who could benefit mm-hmm. from a pencil grip change and a slap board and all that. So it was so, just a really it's brilliant way of doing it's it. It's brilliant. Yeah. Did it work? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. That's brilliant. Yeah.
1: So I'd, I'd, I'd like to turn to uh, a super expert in this area. This is uh, Dr. Elizabeth Kozleski. She, she's on special assignment, so to speak. She's the Dean Senior Scholar for Teaching and Learning at, at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. And she's really helping us put together this initiative. So, uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much for coming. Um, let me open it up very quickly. What, what's it like out there? What's going on?
2: Well, lots of things are going on, and you've named a couple of the things. That is that um, the education system has a, as a uh, process for identifying children who, because of a disabling condition, are also educationally disabled. Mm-hmm. And that's part of that that estimate that you had, Denise, that there are many more people that have disabilities, um, both social and emotional, and also learning disabilities and intellectual disabilities, a variety of others, who may or may not actually qualify under the federal law that um, blankets our country with how we shall identify kids, which kids get in, who shall serve them, how shall they be served, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Can can I—is this true that uh, for some things you— you only get a learning disability if you're sort of a normal IQ, and then you're performing below that in a very specific area like reading.
2: Yes. and um, Which that, is kind of weird. It is weird. And um, there there are a number of alternative ways of identifying children who have this label called learning disability. And one of the problems with having to qualify for it with an IQ that's a certain level, and then a profound um, inability or, or difficulty with learning in a particular area, like particularly in math and reading, is that um, that discrepancy between IQ and ability in a, in a specific thing doesn't hold true for everybody that has a learning disability. And there's a lot of movement in the country towards something called response to intervention, which has morphed more recently into um, multi-tiered systems of support that is designed to say, look at, let's find out if what's going on with this kid is resistant to the kinds of educational opportunities and interventions that might be available in a regular education classroom. So let's try some of this stuff. Let's keep track of what we're doing. Let's keep track of our this student's progress, and if through the re, the child's response to intervention it becomes clear that they need additional support, then we're going to qualify that child to get that ex, extra support through
0: special ed. So, this is Schools in with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we're speaking with Elizabeth Kozleski, who is talking about um, how we diagnose and include students with. Uh, learning disabilities.
1: So the RTI is the name for response to intervention. So uh, a professor named uh, Feuerstein, uh developed something called a dynamic assessment, and he worked with uh, children of low IQs. And his what he did is he would try and teach them how to do the IQ test, and then he would see how well they would learn from this instruction. And it turned out it was a much more precise way of diagnosing, you know, children's needs and and could they respond to the instruction. So is RTI sort of succeeding in giving us better diagnoses or is it just cumbersome as can be because you've got so many people you're trying to move through a system and you're not quite sure what treatments they're getting and things like that?
2: Well, it comes with lots of, lots of problems. It does. Um, conceptually, it's very powerful. Right. But... Um, like our the system that we use in in most cases, which led to a child being identified in one school as having a learning disability and moving across the street or or d- to the next district and being unidentified. Oh, that's such a problem. And the and um, RTI has the same kind of problem because it's the curriculum, and curriculum shifts from building to building. It's the capacity of the uh, resources that are available in any given school. It's the um, ability and um, education of teachers to do this practice well. It's the all of the myriad of other things that are going on in a school building that makes progress monitoring really difficult in classrooms. And in lots of different places people are still using um, clipboards and checking things off with pencils and we don't have the right, digital affordances to be able to track this effectively.
1: No, it's really interesting. You know, measuring people's abilities to learn, it's sort of what we wish the SAT was. Oh, yeah. But it's just so conceptually, it's so powerful. But the execution is so hard. It's much much easier to give these static things.
0: Well, I was even surprised that you said IQ tests are still being used because I thought that those were widely known to
1: be. So my mom. You know, I took an IQ test and my mom convinced the doctor to change the score so I could get into honors.
0: Okay, Dan, are you saying on, on Sirius XM radio that your IQ was not enough is not enough <laughs> to get into honors? Are you are you outing yourself right yes, now? Yes,
1: but then I am immediately gonna follow up with how stupid <laughs> IQ tests yes, are. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. And also just while we're on this topic, I was I thought, and I could be wrong, that we don't say learning disability anymore. We say learning difference. And we say um, atypical and, and "and neurodiversity. Am I, what? It, I uh,
1: oh, please. No, you're the way. expert. Yeah, the we. Next.
0: Yes,
2: those are terms that people use, but we got a law in 1975 that said identify people with specific learning disabilities, identify people um, with intellectual disabilities, identify people with hearing differences, and those those terms are still used, and they exist in all of our states. Some states have slightly different terms. But this more generic understanding that difference is among all of us and we learn in very different ways is, more outside of the profession than it is inside of the profession, although there are people in the profession that are pushing back against that. Um, the idea that it's so clear because we have such sharp and precise tools we can say with a, the confidence of a world-class cancer specialists being able to diagnose different kinds of cancer, oh, yes, I can see this child has clearly got learning disabilities and this child clearly has intellectual disabilities when the characteristics and the way the child learns and the sustainability of the disability itself across years and across different kinds of curriculum
1: varies. So it's it's always struck me that the categories are legal definitions rather than scientific ones. Yes. And so you get these terrible misdiagnosis, patterns of misdiagnosis that line up with particular race and ethnicity. And-
0: this is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we are speaking with Elizabeth Kozleski around kids with learning differences, learning disabilities. And we just hit quite the topic of over-representation um, yeah. of, of kids of different ethnicities.
1: So let, let me uh, switch it a little bit. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a parent. And uh, I feel like there is something going on with my child. What do I do? Do I go to the school and say, uh, test? Do I go to the doctor? Uh, Do I start looking for schools of specific? So just a few practical tips would be helpful.
2: Well, you probably ought to do multiple things um, because there's so much variety and there's so many different ways of looking at a situation with a child. But you definitely want to talk to your child's teacher, and you want to talk to administrators in your local school to find out what they're seeing about um, your child, because what you see may be slightly different than what they're seeing, and you want to gauge the seriousness of what you're looking at. And you also will want to talk to your, your um GP, your 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 family doctor, um, and explain what's going on as well. In doing that, you also need to be mindful that they will bring their own set of tools to understanding this. And there is no one um, single intervention or single pathway to follow that will help you figure out what's best for your child. And so one of the other things that I think um, can be really effective. Is also to notice out loud to your child what what they feel is going on, so you have a better sense of the child's understanding of of how they're learning and how effective their learning is. Um, at that point, if a school if a school is paying attention has also had those wonders, the first thing that will happen that should happen is that the school will get a team together, and they also often have something called a child study team, and that child study team will look at the child in the classroom and find out what's going on and make some suggestions to the classroom teacher about just like, Denise, um, what happened with your with your child, a slant board and a different grip on the pencil, sometimes a different size of the pencil, actually makes a difference in terms of their ability to follow along. And so simple um, uh, supports that can be put into place in the general education classroom can work. Sometimes the structure of the classroom and the way a particular teacher teaches is not effective for a child, and a different classroom organized in a slightly different way can make a difference. So all remedies that can be um, done in in a school that don't require the labeling of a child should be done first, and parents should participate because they know some stuff about their kid that the school, the schools don't. So that's the first. That would be
0: the first step. And we are going to do the other steps right when we get back. This is Schools in with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we will have more with Elizabeth Kozleski talking about learning differences, learning disabilities, and inclusion. Next on SiriusXM Insight One Twenty One. You're listening to Schools in with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to School's In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're talking today with Elizabeth Kozleski, who is an expert on learning disabilities.
1: So I, I need to apologize, Denise. Yes. You you were bringing up the issue of disproportionality. Yes. And I and I switched to what could I do as a parent. Yes. And Elizabeth, you were talking about what I could do as a parent. And I'm going to interrupt that to go back <laughs> to disproportionality.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay. Sorry.
1: Before we get to step two. So... You, you ended on the point that uh, you'd sort of like to get things done before there's a label.
2: There's a cost-benefit analysis that families and individuals with disabilities and um, the community at, at large needs to think about, and that is that any time you get a label that suggests that you are in some way um, different and possibly not quite as good as everybody else, there's stigma that's attached to it. And that stigma lasts, it lasts over time. And that stigma is both in the minds of other children in a community, but it's also something that is inside of a child themselves and alters the way that they think about their capacities um, their potential, and the things that they might strive for. So labeling kids, because they have a learning difference, is problematic. On the other hand, it opens up a gate right. of services. And those often those services provide opportunities to think about learning and to get opportunities to work one-on-one with highly skilled people who can help them learn tools and techniques that can compensate or redirect the the strategies that that they use to learn. So we don't want to make errors that prevent children from getting the support that they need, but we don't want to label children to get support when that support could be arranged without the need of highly skilled people. Now, part of part of this problem is the fact that we're living with a law that was created and and underfunded that said that you can only get that support if you get a label. Right. It's a catch-22. And so the boundary itself is problematic. It's not that lots of different children don't have needs, but the boundary itself is problematic because it only lets some people in, and it's it's designed so that... these few intensive resources can go to the kids who are most likely to benefit from it. But it has these lifelong consequences. So one of the things that's been going on um, in the US for the last probably uh, 15 years is this really intensive focus on can, can and how might we deliver the same level of expert support for learning in the context of the general education classroom, so that not only the children that um, have the disability can benefit from these resources, but those resources, because they're often tools that teachers use, can also be used for the benefit of other children. And that has meant that about 67% of the children in the United States who are now identified for special education out of that more than 6 million, almost 7 million kids that Dan was talking about at the beginning of the show, uh, 67% of them are actually served with their special education services in the general education classroom. Now, that range varies from state to state. So, there are some states that only serve 45 to 50% of their kids, and there are other states in general ed. And there are other states that serve up to ninety and ninety-five percent of their kids in general education classrooms, and a lot of that has to not to do with children and teachers; it has to do with how systems are organized.
1: Are there, are there uh, studies that show uh, more time in general education is better?
2: Yes, and and um, they they show two things: um, more time in, in general ed is better usually for children because of the incidental learning that comes from seeing accomplished peers who are skilled at doing certain kinds of things. Um, Children get an opportunity to see lots of role models. When they're taken out and put into uh, self-contained classrooms or uh, learning labs that, that last for the portion of the day that's more academically oriented, The peer group in there is often other children who are struggling to learn. And that creates a different kind of cohort experience, if you will, for the children with disabilities that that is different from the one that children in typical classrooms have because they've got a range of role models
0: to learn from. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're talking with Elizabeth Kozleski about how we educate students who learn differently.
1: I do think we should. I should pick up on Denise's point, which is, the identity, the labeling is, it the way the labels split along various lines can't be true. So maybe you could speak to that a little bit about the disproportionality.
2: One of the things that has come along with special education, and it's you know been around in our public school system for a long time, is the fact that children come to school enculturated in strategies that allow them to learn in the school way efficiently and effectively, and other children because of their uh, cultural experiences and their histories and um, the migratory patterns of their families and a variety of different, of, of different factors come to school and don't have the skill set of call and response. They don't have the skill set of participating in classrooms. They don't have the skill set of socializing with other children. And when teachers get down to, okay, everybody all together, Pull out your paper and let's color, let's color in the lines. There are some children for whom that is as foreign as it, was, it would be to any of us if we were um, asked to attend a lecture in Russian or um, some other Urdu or another language that I certainly don't speak. I don't know about the, the both of you, but that would be extremely challenging and I would probably have a lot of behaviors around that.
1: So ADHD is the most prevalent misdiagnosis cuz I'm going to act out. I'm in a situation that's frustrating, I don't know what to do. I'm going to do something.
2: And that might not be an ADHD situation, but it's a behavior problem and okay. it's seen as a behavior right. problem and kids who don't who, uh, who don't uh, have strategies will end up getting labeled. Um, or so, or suspended, or whatever, right? Right. So, right. But towards yeah. the special, on the special ed side of it, people will go. Oh, there's something wrong here with this child, and let's figure out what it is. And they'll they'll use the diagnostic um, categories to decide that this child may need X, Y, and Z, one one or another of strategies, and end up in special education when really the issue was a cultural and linguistic diversity that the curriculum in school and the adults who were in the school didn't recognize. There's a lot of controversy now about the degree to which disproportionality exists, that is, the overrepresentation of students from minoritized backgrounds, um, either linguistically or racially and ethnically. One side of the coin is we can see this, and there are data, people who are analyzing these data, particularly at the school and district level, who see disproportionality. There are other sets of researchers who are looking at large data sets at the national level and saying, you know, we, have, we need to worry about the underrepresentation too, because sometimes people are afraid to identify a child who actually may need services and isn't getting them.
0: We should do 5 shows with Elizabeth because we we really just have scratched the surface and it's time to go. Um, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: um, but the good news is that I think as a parent, um, I now know a, a lot more than what before the show started um, and
1: <laughs> it doesn't make up for the fact that the show was too short.
0: Yeah, this is true. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us um, and thank our listeners for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the Sirius XM app, iTunes and SoundCloud. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope.